millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we get going today, I'd like to quickly thank my latest Patreon supporters, Amanda, Maria, Chandel, Michelle, along with someone who didn't provide a name. Thanks so much to you all and every one of my Patreon supporters. You can find out more about how to support me at patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 65, Mary of Modena, the always expecting Duchess. Mary of Modena is the last queen that we will be covering on this podcast, and looking over her life, she is a rather fitting person on whom to end, as she marks the end of an era in many ways, but also her life contains many of the same themes that we have seen throughout this podcast. The first, last, is the most important. It is, after all, the reason why we're ending here. She was the last queen consort of England. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. After her came only Queen Regnants up until the Act of Union in 1707 that turned the monarchy of England into the monarchy of Great Britain. She was also the last Catholic consort married to the last Catholic monarch of either England or its successor crowns. After her lie only Protestant. Since the Reformation, the vast majority of queens that we have covered have been Catholics, with only Catherine Parr being a true Protestant. But after James and Mary's exile and the Glorious Revolution, having a Catholic as a monarch or consort wasn't just frowned upon. It was banned by constitutional law, one that still lies on the statute books to this day. And finally, she was the last Italian queen. Though there I'm slightly cheating, as she is also our only Italian queen. But she isn't just an end to our story. As her life, a very eventful one despite her short period as queen, touches on many of the themes that we have seen throughout the running of this show. The story of England and its kings and queens continue on past union, 
And, as those of you who have read ahead will know, she was not the last queen to live through many of the same experiences that we have seen throughout the last seven centuries or so. It has also become a rather tired cliché of mine to talk about a forgotten queen, as telling the stories of these little talked-about women has always been one of my major goals in doing this podcast. But almost no one has heard of Mary, yet, as we shall see, she was one of the strongest and most courageous queens that England ever saw. Okay, that's enough build-up, I reckon. Let's talk about Mary. She was born in 1658, in the city of Modena, which was the capital of the Duchy of Modena and Reggio. This duchy, situated on the northwest of the peninsula, was one of the many small states that made up what we now call Italy. And when I say small, it was about only 70 miles long by 50 miles wide. Since the 15th century, it had been ruled by the House of Este. Its rulers had once been one of the great players in Italy, occupying a rich and fertile plain with ports on both the Adriatic and Mediterranean sides of the peninsula, but it had lost a considerable amount of territory at the turn of the 17th century. At the time of Mary's birth, the northern part of the peninsula was dominated by four major powers, Milan, Venice, Florence and the Papal States, but Modena wanted into that club. Its current ruler, and Mary's father, was Alfonso IV, who was married to Laura Martinozzi, who was from an old Roman family. Alfonso's goal was to restore Modena to importance, and his plan centred around, you guessed it, marrying off his children. Mary was the eldest, and she had also a brother called Francis. When she was just four years old, her father died, leaving her little brother as duke and her mother as regent. She was educated, much like Henrietta Maria had been, by Carmelite nuns, and grew up as a very devout and devoted Catholic. Indeed, while her mother and brother were extremely keen to marry her off to as great an advantage as they could get, her desire was always to take the veil and join her teachers in the convent. She received an excellent education there and was clearly very intelligent, learning to speak fluent French as well as Italian and spoke pretty good Latin. She also grew into a very strong-willed woman, unafraid to speak her mind and stand up for herself. She would later talk longingly of the palace at Sassuolo, where she had spent her summer months, of the peace and beauty of the place. But history had something else in store for her. At the age of 12, she was officially floated, as it were, on the international marriage market, and there were plenty of potential takers that were explored, with negotiations largely led by her uncle, Rinaldo. She was offered first to the Duke of Orléans, brother of King Louis XIV, who was the widower of Minette, the youngest daughter of Charles I and Anne of Denmark, but he turned her down. Her mother tried to arrange a Spanish match, though that was a bit of a long shot. Rinaldo also tried to arrange a Hanoverian match, but again, that fell through. None of them were considering a match with the House of Stuart at all, and indeed, she slipped onto their radar quite by accident. Okay, so let's leave Mary and hop over the Alps, down the Rhine, across the Channel, and back in time a few decades. So we talked a bit already about James, but he's only really entered our story in passing so far, so let's give him a proper, if quick, introduction. He was born in 1633, so 25 years before his future bride, as the second surviving son of Charles I and Henrietta Maria. While still in his crib, he was given the titles of Duke of York and Lord High Admiral, and grew up alongside his big brother Charles. He fought alongside his father during the Civil Wars, 
but was captured after the fall of Oxford in 1646. He, however, managed to escape after disguising himself as a woman and managed to escape to the continent. He then basically became a soldier for hire, serving in the armies of France and Spain, sometimes against the English Commonwealth armies, before the Restoration came along we saw him return to England. Now, as we will see, James was never someone to check the mood in the room, or indeed the country, before making decisions, and this is definitely shown by his choice of first bride. While in exile, he had fallen for Anne Hyde, the daughter of Charles's chief advisor, Edward Hyde, who would later become Earl of Clarendon. Hyde may have been a nobleman now, but he had been born a commoner, meaning that, at first, the relationship and their marriage had to be conducted in secret. Even after she became pregnant for the first time, neither of them admitted who the father was, and it didn't come out until much later. It was not a popular match for all sorts of reasons, but it was very important to our story for two reasons. First, as I said earlier, it shows how little James cared for the opinion of the public or the nobility. He well knew the controversy that this marriage would cause, how little advantage it would bring, but he did it anyway. But most importantly, it is highly likely that it was his first wife that converted him to Catholicism. James had spent most of his adult life around Catholics, not to mention the fact that his mother was one too, and it seems that he had developed sympathies with the old faith. But it also seems that Anne tipped him over the edge. Now, his conversion was one of those court secrets. Most people suspected, but it was never let out into the open. That is until the Test Act of 1573, which you may remember from last time, which forced all Catholics in public office out into the open. It wasn't considered a huge problem outside of Parliament, though, as, while he was the heir apparent, it was widely hoped that Charles II was bound to have heirs of his own. James would just be an aberration. Anne Hyde gave birth eight times, but all but two died very young, leaving Mary and Anne as their sole living children. They were brought up as good Anglican girls, though, as per Charles II's command. He may have had Catholic sympathies, but, unlike his brother, he was wary of public perception. After a final pregnancy in 1571, Anne fell ill and died, being buried in the vault of Queen Mary of Scots in Westminster Abbey. This left James a widower, but he was determined not to remain so for long. Indeed, the Venetian ambassador to England wrote that, quote, The Duchess of York was not buried when negotiations were begun for a fresh marriage. James wanted a bride who was young enough to bear sons and very attractive. He appointed the Earl of Peterborough to be his marriage agent and dispatched him to scour the continent for a suitable bride. And that is where Mary of Modena re-enters our story. First, a Habsburg marriage was considered to the Archduchess of Tyrol, but in classic Habsburgian fashion, she instead married her cousin. James, it seems, examined the possibility of marrying just about every noblewoman in Europe. According to his biographer, John Miller, quote, The negotiations of the next few months showed many of the characteristics of farce. In a frenzy of impulsive impatience, James changed his mind with bewildering rapidity, as new reports or rumours reached him, and new arguments or snags were suggested to him. Eventually, however, Peterborough headed to Versailles to see what the French could offer his master in terms of a bride. And, it turns out, he had Mary of Modena in mind. So, why was Louis XIV setting up an Italian princess with James? Well... Rinaldo, Mary's uncle, 
put forward her name to Louis, but didn't tell anyone back in Modena that he had done so. This was because Mary's mother had rather higher aspirations for her daughter than the brother of the King of England. She was still focused on the match for Spain. So when Louis found out that the regent of Modena disapproved of the match, he was rather embarrassed and annoyed, but it was too late. Peterborough managed to procure a portrait of Mary and was suitably impressed with what he saw, and so recommended her to his master. James was not immediately impressed, as he had heard that she was ugly, ginger, and too slim to bear children, but his mind was changed after he heard a report from Peterborough after his man had seen her in person for the first time. Quote, the Princess Mary of Este appeared to be at this time about 14 years of age. She was tall and admirably shaped. Her complexion was of the last degree of fairness, her hair black as jet. So were her eyebrows and her eyes, but the latter so full of light and sweetness as they did dazzle and charm too. There seemed given unto them by nature sovereign power to kill and power to save. And in the whole turn of her face, which was of the most graceful oval, there were all the features, all the beauty, and all that could be great and charming in any human creature. Quite the review there. Mary's mother continued to oppose the match, most vociferously, and it took the intervention of none other than the Pope himself to talk her into it. He stated that it was her duty as a Catholic to let the marriage happen. With James likely to inherit the thrones of England and Scotland, a marriage with a fellow Catholic might lead to a Catholic son, which could in turn lead to both kingdoms returning to the old faith. In his view, though James claimed to be a Catholic, while he still attended Protestant services, he could never be a true member of the old faith. This was an opportunity that could not be missed. Laura could hardly say no to his holiness, and so eventually assented to the match, on the condition that Mary be able to exercise her religion as she saw fit in England. The most unhappy person, though, with the match was Mary herself. She wanted to be a nun and told Peterborough that herself. When he told her that James wished to marry her, she replied that, quote, she was obliged to the King of England and the Duke for their good opinion, but that she could not but wonder why from so many princesses of more merit, whom would esteem their honour and be ready to embrace it, they should persist in endeavouring to force the inclinations of another, for whom it was impossible to agree to a proposition of that nature, and that she had vowed herself, as much as in her power, to another sort of life, out of which she could never think she should be happy. She suggested, charitably, that maybe he would be more interested in marrying her aunt instead. Peterborough tried to talk her around, but she would not be persuaded by his charms, and it took her mother's intervention to force her into the match. Famously, she is reported to have wept for days over having to marry this much older man from a foreign land whom she had never met. She was torn from her chosen path in life and forced onto a far more difficult road. In second place in the unhappiness stakes was the English Parliament, who were outraged at the lack of consultation, and that yet another member of the royal family was marrying a foreign Catholic. Remember, Parliament was entering its most virulent anti-Catholic phase, and there was talk of insurrection over both this marriage and that of Charles II with Catherine of Braganza. But both the King and Duke were not ones to pay much store by Parliament's religious fundamentalism, and insisted that the marriage go ahead. On the 20th of September, 1674, at the Ducal Palace in Modena, Mary was married by proxy to James, Duke of York, with the Earl of Peterborough standing in as proxy for his master. 
the Bishop of Modena had declined to officiate over the ceremony, as the Pope had, for complex reasons, withdrawn his dispensation. So it was presided over by the court chaplain. It was a magnificent occasion nonetheless, befitting the significance of the marriage. The daughter of Modena was marrying the heir apparent to the thrones of three kingdoms. She may well be on the road to becoming a queen. She sets out from her new homeland a few days later, with her brother, the Duke of Modena, accompanying her for the first few days. She is said to have been in tears again when he departed her side. She was escorted by Peterborough and his entourage and was accompanied by her mother, along with assorted Italian hangers-on. It was a long journey, first up through Italy and across the Alps to France, and then a slow progress north through Savoy and Lyon, finally arriving in Versailles a month later. There, she was greeted in state by Louis XIV. She then learned that Parliament and the King were still fighting over the marriage, but that Charles was committed to upholding the agreement. Still, it can't have given much comfort for Mary, still remember, just a teenager, as she waited to make the final part of her journey. After some much-needed rest, she left Paris and reached Calais in late November, where she was forced to do something that is never advisable, crossing the Channel in winter. I haven't found anything in the way of a description of the journey, but it can't have been comfortable, and so it must have been with some great relief that she arrived in Dover on the 22nd of November. There, she was greeted rather gallantly on the beach by her new husband, but not many others. The political position in England was so precarious that few dared align themselves with this marriage. That evening, the Bishop of Oxford formally confirmed the match. Now, if you were hoping that this story would turn into a Disney-style fairy tale, whereby the foreign teenage bride arrives in a new country and immediately falls in love and everything is wonderful, well, you would be wrong. For a start, her new husband was no handsome Prince Charming. First, as I've always said, he was a quarter century older than her, but he was also poxmarked, had a stutter, and a kind of annoying nervous tick that made him speak so quickly and slurriedly that it was hard to understand him, when he became excited or agitated. But, to be fair, he was also a brave and extremely loyal man, both, I would argue, to a fault, which made the pill a little easier to swallow for Mary. She wrote the following back to the mother superior of the convent that she had wished to enter in Modena. Quote, I am in very good health, dear mother, thank God, but I cannot yet accustom myself to this state of life, to which, as you know, I have always been averse. Therefore I cry a great deal and am much afflicted, not being able to rid myself of melancholy. However, God be praised, this is my cross. When you're comparing your life to being like Jesus dying on the cross, then you know things aren't going, you know, well. But she does go on to say, quote, The Duke is a very good man and wishes me well and would do anything to prove it to me. He is so firm and steady in our holy religion that he would not leave for anything in this world. And in my affliction, this is my consolation. After spending three days in Dover, they set off for London, to what can only be described as a mixed reception. The bells rang in celebration and they were greeted by small yet enthusiastic crowds, but also the Pope was burned in effigy in Southwark after a big parade. She was greeted warmly though by Queen Catherine, who was delighted to have another Catholic in the family. But not everything went as smoothly to plan. When they met the king, he offered Mary's mother a seat, but several of the more anti-Catholic lords strongly objected to this, claiming that since she was not royal, it would be a severe breach in protocol. Now, that wasn't the real reason, of course. They just wanted to embarrass this foreign Catholic heretic and her daughter and new son-in-law, 
and they managed to do so with gusto. Furious, the Dowager Duchess of Modena left England soon after, leaving her daughter to fend for herself. Now, it's been quite a while since we have covered someone who married a duke, not a king. Here's a test for you. Can you remember who the last one was? No? Yeah? Well, obviously I can't hear you, so I'll tell you. It was Anne Neville, way back in the 15th century, who had married Richard, who was then also, coincidentally, the Duke of York. Before that, it was Eleanor of Castile, who was the first wife of Edward I, so we're really stretching back for that. So what I'm saying here is that this is quite unusual. But these times were themselves unusual. It was now widely agreed that Catherine of Braganza was not going to be producing any children, and so the succession to the thrones of Scotland, England and Ireland would pass, theoretically at least, to James, Duke of York, with Mary as his queen. James already had two daughters. He had no need of any more of them. What he wanted was a son. That was the goal of this marriage, and James and Mary really put their backs into this one. The children and grandchildren of Charles I, though, really had absolutely rotten luck when it came to pregnancy. So, strap yourselves in, because things are about to get tragic. Mary of Modena was someone who got pregnant easily and frequently, much like her more famous stepdaughter, the future Queen Anne. Here are some amazing statistics, because I love a good stat. Between her marriage in 1673 and her accession as Queen in 1685, about an 11-year and change period, she was pregnant at least 10 times. In 1675, when she was around 1718, she was pregnant three times in the calendar year, but also, more astonishingly, miscarried a child in October and then conceived another child just weeks later. Of these ten pregnancies, three resulted in stillbirths. Two were miscarriages. One child died immediately after birth, and one died of smallpox after a month, and two of convulsions after living three months and nine months respectively. Only one child then lived beyond her first birthday, but she died at the age of four. The hardest of these losses to take was probably of the only son that she gave birth to in this period, Charles, Duke of Cambridge. After his sudden death, after appearing to have been in good health, she wrote the following to her brother. With tears in my eyes, I write to tell you the terrible news of the loss of my dear son, whom it has pleased God to take to himself at midday yesterday. You can picture my affliction. Great is my gladness when he was born, so great is my anguish at his loss. But one must bear it. God knows what he is about, and may his holy will be done. I should have been so happy to have this little son to be spared to me. I'm not going to go into tremendous detail about this all, mostly because it's just so sad. But think how emotionally strong Mary must have been through all of this. This was a different time, where infant mortality was high, and so losing children so young was more of a fact of life than it is now. But still, this must have been incredibly hard for her, and to keep going with all this showed tremendous courage and resilience. A tremendous display of loyalty and duty to her husband and to her new country. She genuinely could not have given more, but it seemed it was simply not to be. Mary remarked many years later that, quote, I never enjoyed happiness in England, save between the ages of 15 and 20. But in those five years, I was always pregnant and I lost all the children I had. Judge for yourself what happiness that was. So what did Mary get up to in these five years of extremely qualified happiness? 
Well, unlike her two predecessors as queen, she was a very effective communicator and learned English very quickly. She was probably the cleverest English queen since Catherine Parr and became a fixture in the court's cultural scene. She shared Catherine Braganza's love of music, dancing and theatre and was an avid art collector, much like Henrietta had been, though to nothing like the same extent. She was allowed to exercise her religion, but unlike Queen Catherine, she had to do so in private, which was technically in contravention of the marriage treaty, but no one seemed particularly keen to rock that particular boat. Again, like the Queen, she had no particular interest in getting involved in politics, and since she was merely a duchess, she was able to largely stay out of the whole thing for these first five years. She got on well with her stepdaughter Mary, though not with her youngest sister Anne. Both of them were fairly close in age to herself, she being only four years older than Princess Mary. Indeed, when James informed his 11-year-old daughter that he was going to marry, he did so by telling her, quote, I have provided you with a new bedfellow, which, to modern ears, sounds rather creepy if you ask me. The two had quite a bit in common, actually, especially when the princess was told that she was to marry William, Prince of Orange. Like our Mary, the princess was utterly opposed and cried for days at the prospect of marrying this strange foreign man, and one can only imagine that Mary was able to offer some wisdom and comfort at this difficult time for the princess before she set sail for the Low Countries. But these happy-ish five years came to a crashing end in 1678. Can you remember why? I should hope so, because we talked about it at length last time. The Popish Plot. So, as a quick reminder, this was the work of noted ex-Catholic and massive liar Titus Oates, who made up a whole Catholic conspiracy to kill Charles II and usher in some sort of hellish Catholic state. Every Catholic lord or lady was either implicated or targeted in the aftermath of these allegations, and Mary of Modena was no exception. James II was, along with the Queen, the chief target of Oates and his followers, as they were the most prominent Catholics in the kingdom. Mary herself wasn't the subject of any specific accusation, it was well known that she had little political influence, but she still suffered. Her secretary and friend, Edward Coleman, became one of the most famous victims of the plot. He was a Catholic convert who had been spending a lot of time going between England and France seeking an alliance, and Oates accused him of being one of the main conspirators, earmarked for the key position of Secretary of State in the new regime. Though the evidence against him was thinner than thin, it was decided by Charles and his ministers that this wasn't the hill that they particularly wished to die on, and so they didn't object too much to him being convicted of high treason and executed through the brutal process of being hung, drawn and quartered. At the time, and for centuries to come, he was seen as a martyr to Catholics, and he was beatified in 1929 by Pope Pius XI. Her chaplain and confessor, Claude de la Colombière, was imprisoned and exiled, only spared death because of his close relationship with Louis XIV. The Modernese ambassador England was considered to have offered money in support to the imagined plotters, and supposedly her mother and aunt were both fully aware of the plot and had said nothing. And this is to say nothing of the concern that she had for her husband, who was in the middle of the whole thing as well, as in Oates' fantasy plot, James was about to become king. This was also wrapped up in what is known as the Exclusion Crisis, whereby certain leading Protestants sought to deny James the crown on the grounds of his Catholicism. Remember, at this time, there was no specific law written regarding the succession. The notion of primogeniture, the succession of the eldest child, some preferred, and so forth, was entrenched in convention, but it was not written into law. 
These two things, Popish plot and exclusion crisis, created a great storm around James that would never really fade. All around her, Mary saw how members of her faith were suffering at the hysterical hands of English extremist Protestants. She wrote to her brother, quote, I grieve for the extreme misery of the poor Catholics, all of whom are banished from London and may not come within ten miles of it. Many are dying of exposure and privation. Some miserable beings, constrained by need, were abandoning their holy faith. With danger swirling around both Mary and her husband, it was decided that it would be prudent if they got out of the country for a while. This was not the view of either James or Mary. Like the king and queen, they wished to stay and clear their names, but Charles insisted. There was a famous incident at the dock, where that Charles was seeing them off on the ship, and supposedly wavered, calling upon them with a tear in his eye not to go because the weather was not favourable. Rather spitefully, Mary called back, quote, How, sire, you are grieved? You who send us into exile? Of course we must go, since you have ordered it. Their destination was the Dutch Republic, where they were greeted by James's son-in-law, William of Orange. Mary was anxious to go and be reunited with her friend and stepdaughter, who I will continue to refer to as Princess Mary for convenience, but a combination of illness and William being a rather controlling husband meant that they did not meet. They were recalled to England a few months later, but James was soon after sent beyond the war to Scotland, ostensibly to help put down a revolt, but one suspects it was really to get him out of London again. On this occasion, it was intended that Mary should stay in London, but she insisted on going with James, something that seems to have been deeply touching for him. In his memoirs, he wrote, quote, The Duchess, though she was not above 20 years old, chose rather, even with the hazard of her life, to be a constant companion of the Duke, her husband's misfortunes and hardships, than to enjoy her ease in any part of the world without him but it was a sensible travel to his royal highness to see the duchess thus obliged to undergo a sort of martyrdom for her affection to him. And he, to humour the peevish and timorous dispositions of some counsellors, to be thus sent a sort of vagabond about the world. Her quote-unquote exile in Scotland with her husband was difficult for Mary, as she was far from any of her friends or systems of support. She was also away from her daughter Isabel, the longest living of her children as Duchess, who died while she was away at the age of four. One can only imagine what a blow that must have been. Scotland's church was Presbyterian, a sterner and more austere form of Protestantism than Anglicanism, but it was far from the hysterical mobs of London, and so she would have felt far safer at Holyrood House, despite the isolation. While she had some role in state business while in Edinburgh, She was mostly left to her own devices, which meant that she spent a lot of time riding, as it distracted her from her grief for the loss of her daughter. She was an accomplished rider, and was often painted in her riding clothes, but she did have one very dangerous accident in October 1681, where she was thrown from her horse, dragged and kicked by it, and suffered numerous injuries. Two months after, James remarked that, quote, "'Twas a miracle she was not spoiled, and tis a great mercy she had no more harm.' Her legs mended apace, but she is yet tied to lie on her bed or sit in a chair. She and James returned to England the following year, as the final embers of the Popish plot were extinguished. Mary attended the marriage of her youngest stepdaughter Anne to Prince George of Denmark in 1683, but really, she spent these years mostly in a state of pretty much constant pregnancy and grief, as she lost child after child. But in the winter of 1685, that all changed. 
As I mentioned last week, Mary was present at Charles II's deathbed conversion to Catholicism and was one of the first to learn about his death. The prospect of becoming Queen of England had been one of the principal reasons for her being sent to marry James in the first place. Now, after 11 years in England, she had finally gained her crown. But as I mentioned earlier, it had been a long time since a married king had received a coronation, and very few queens consort over the last couple of centuries even received a coronation. The last few, due to religious differences. James was determined that he and Mary should be crowned together, and a deal was struck with the church whereby it would be an Anglican ceremony, but with the sacrament omitted. This was an early sign from James that despite his Catholicism, he was not to be enforcing his religion on his country. All he asked was to be allowed to conduct his own religious beliefs as he saw fit. He reappointed most of his brother's ministers, and much like with the accession of Mary Tudor, the country, Protestant and Catholic alike, Protestant and Catholic alike, were enthusiastic about their new king and queen. The night before their coronation, James and Mary were given a private coronation by a Catholic priest, but the main public ceremony the next day was an extremely grand affair. Her coronation robes were said to be so glittering with jewels that she literally sparkled. Her train, made from purple velvet, was seven yards long, and she entered under a canopy of cloth of gold borne above her by five noblewomen. She had the use of no less than three crowns that day. One circlet that she wore into the abbey, the imperial crown with which she was crowned, and her state crown that she wore for the rest of the day and continued to wear on state occasions. This crown, in fact, was in continual use by Queen's consort right up to the reign of William IV, the father of Queen Victoria, and is currently on display at the Tower of London. During the ceremony, unlike her husband, she conducted herself with perfect propriety, taking part in the Anglican ceremony without complaint, and looking for all onlookers to be the perfect consort. James, on the other hand, did no such thing, which was not really a great look. Now, the reign of James II of England and Seventh of Scots was tumultuous and short, as I'm sure many of you will know. His stubbornness, lack of political instincts and Catholicism, coupled with a powerful clique of anti-Catholic Whig nobles and politicians, meant for a reign that was rarely far from crisis. Yet since Mary's role in the politics of England during this period was limited... I won't go into much detail. For the rest of today's episode, though, I would like to talk a little bit about what she did do as Queen, and then in later episodes we can get into the Glorious Revolution and the fallen exile of King James. Mary's household was modelled on that of Catherine of Braganza, and so there was considerable continuity there in terms of its organisation and cost. She, of course, spoke fluent English by now, which is unusual in Stuart Queen's, but perhaps her greatest advantage was the fact that, unlike all her predecessors for a good long while, she had been in the country for a long time in advance of becoming queen. That meant that she was familiar with how the kingdom worked and had networks of support already in place. Like her predecessors, she was also greatly disappointed when her husband quite publicly took on a mistress. In his case, it was Catherine Sedley. Their affair had been going on for quite some time, well before James had come to the throne, but now that he was king, it took on a new, far more political dimension. She was raised the peerage, being made Countess of Dorchester. She was raised the peerage, being made Countess of Dorchester, and moved into the apartments at Whitehall that had previously been the home of one of Charles II's mistresses. Mary was not happy when Catherine was seated near them at dinner. She, quote, hardly ate one morsel, nor spoke one word to the king or anyone about her, 
though at other times she used to be extremely pleasant, full of discourse and good humour. She confronted her husband about this and gave him an ultimatum. Dumb Catherine, or you can find herself a new wife. It says something about Mary's power over James that he was forced to comply with his wife's demand, and Catherine was sent into a kind of exile in Ireland. Although her influence on policy was, as I have already said, quite limited, it was not seen so at the time. People throughout time have always been keener to blame wives and subordinates for the failings of their leaders, and Mary was no exception. When united in her Catholicism, it is easy to see how she became a great target. The Duke of Monmouth clearly saw her as an influence on the king, as he appealed to her, as well as Catherine of Braganza, to help save him from execution after his failed rebellion. Indeed, there were many who tried to use the queen to influence the king, as her stepdaughter Anne rather spitefully states in a letter to her sister, Princess Mary. Quote, The queen, you must know, is of a very proud, haughty humour, and though she pretends to hate all those forms and ceremony, yet one sees that those who make her their court this way are very well thought of. She declares always that she loves sincerity and hates flattery, but when the grossest flattery in the world is said to her face, she seems extremely well placed with it. It really is enough to turn to one's stomach to hear what things are said to her of this kind and see how mightily she is satisfied with it. It seems that most of her limited attempts to influence policy were based around royal appointments, but not always with success. She managed to persuade the Pope to appoint one of her relatives as cardinal in 1686, so she had a little experience in this field, and so sought to use that when James wanted to appoint a new Privy Council member. His choice was his chaplain, Edmund Petra, but he was enormously unpopular. He was the most senior Catholic cleric in England, and as James's spiritual advisor, he was blamed whenever James did anything especially Catholic-y. Mary, having far better political instincts than James, saw this and tried to talk him out of it. She also tried to stop James sacking the very capable Cardinal Howard from his position of Cardinal Protector, but in both cases she was unsuccessful. James, it seems, was incapable of listening to sound advice. But this view of Mary as this nefarious Catholic influence would never go away. So, she had little influence, but was imagined to have much, as she was of the wrong religion for most. Her husband was unpopular, ruling poorly, and already subject to two major rebellions. Basically, things weren't going well. But there was one thing keeping everything from completely going to hell. James and Mary still had not had a healthy surviving son. James wasn't the youngest man alive. He wouldn't be around forever. His heir, Princess Mary, was a good Protestant who could undo any damage that her father might inflict. All everyone had to do was sit tight and wait. Mary had suffered miscarriage after miscarriage and lost every child she had ever had. She was now 30 years old, and so approaching the summit of the proverbial hill. There was no chance for upsetting this apple cart, right? Well, yes, in fact there was. In late 1687, Mary discovered that she was pregnant, and so the whole kingdom held their breath. Would it be a son? An heir? A Catholic heir? Next week, we're going to spend an entire episode looking at the birth of James and Mary's child, a little bundle of joy that would end their reign and usher in a Dutch invasion with just killer marketing.